This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Can Europe keep the lights on? That voice is not from a fringe podcaster looking for clicks. The public broadcasting network in Germany, Deutsche Welle, is seriously asking if Europe is heading for crisis in the coming months. European gas stockpiles are now at their lowest levels in years, at a time when demand will jump during the cold winter months. And in the North Sea, winds have stopped blowing. Thousands of wind turbines there are producing drastically less energy. In Germany, wind power accounted for just over a fifth of Germany's electricity supply during the first half of this year. A year ago, wind made up 29% of the energy mix. Conventional energy sources, dirtier ones like coal, are filling that gap. The sudden reversal away from wind back to fossil fuels illustrates the difficulty of Europe's green transition. Wind is supposed to play a major role, but even Brussels can't control the weather. That is from Deutsche Welle TV, September 16, 2021. Recently on Radio EcoShock, expert forecaster Judah Cohen warned us the signs are lining up for a colder, snowier winter this year in the Northern Hemisphere, and Europe is a target. Already natural gas shortages have pushed weird shortages in the supply chain and products going missing on the shelves. Power companies and industry are sliding backward into burning coal when Europe is supposed to be slashing emissions. Europe's largest fertilizer company, which converts natural gas into nitrogen, has closed down. Two large gas sellers in the UK holding contracts with about a million homeowners have closed, bankrupt, in just the last week. Gas users in the UK are paying the highest rates in Europe. Can seniors and the poor afford to keep warm this winter? But it is not just Europe. Natural gas prices have already doubled in both Canada and the United States, with financial analysts at Goldman Sachs saying they could double again. And that's if La Nina and a weak jet stream drive Arctic extremes back into the plains and the northeast. Northern China is another possible target for extreme cold this winter. The Chinese are outbidding all other Asian buyers for liquid natural gas shipments, just hiking that price up there. And the Chinese are starting to snatch Atlantic-bound shipments as well. The struggling Asian economies face another hurdle. I've reached a specialist in European gas markets to get the insider scoop for Europe and the world. In our second half hour, our scientist answers this real-world weather problem. You know extreme rainfall events are hitting all over the world. But aside from headline-grabbing floods in the U.S. Northeast and deadly ones in Northern Europe this summer, the actual amount of flooding has not kept up with very heavy rains falling. Why not? And is there a point where extreme rains will be revealed to become the floods never seen before? From the University of Freiburg, Manuela Brunner solves the riddle. Radio EcoShock. Natural gas helps keep Europeans warm, employed, and with the lights on. But if a colder winter forecast comes true, sky-high gas prices and electric bills, well, they're already driving protests and politics across Europe. And now Asia will pay more to fill their large needs. Major energy moves are afoot with implications for geopolitics and greenhouse gas emissions. 
You won't get much depth about this from TV news. An EcoShock listener tipped me a review of the situation published by Argus Media. They specialize in markets for energy and commodities. Recently, an insider gas roundup was written by the Argus editor for European Natural Gas, Natasha Fielding. From London, Natasha Fielding, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, great to be here. Natural gas prices have doubled this year in Canada and in the U.S., but that is still cheap compared to the price hikes in the U.K. What are you seeing there? We have seen dramatic rises in European gas prices. It's happened kind of steadily over the course of the summer, but particularly in the past week or two, prices have really skyrocketed to fresh record highs. I mean, they haven't been this high for the decades. And there have been some protests in some European cities against rising energy prices, especially for gas and electricity. Is this becoming a political issue? It certainly is becoming a political issue, and it's it's, it's hit mainstream news um, in the UK and also across the continent very recently. Yes, we, we have the French presidential elections coming up next year, and France has had a a number of street protests on a lot of issues, but I noticed that uh, energy prices are, are coming into what people are complaining about. Yeah, and, and I, it seems to me that people are concerned that the energy transition isn't happening fast enough. And so what you have is the kind of the, the need for fossil fuels as a backup for renewables. And when there isn't enough of those fossil fuels to go around, well, then you have a really brittle energy system. Under popular pressure, the Spanish government is taking drastic steps. They will snatch back some profits from energy companies and pay that back on consumer bills. Do you know how that works? It sounds very unusual. Yes, that is that is a rather unusual move. I don't know all, all the details of that, but it, governments are trying to do whatever they can not to pass on all of those extra costs to the consumers. Well, I noticed in another Argus Energy uh, article that I came across on your site that Spain also hopes to help consumers cope with huge bills by selling off almost a billion dollars more carbon emissions permits. And to me, that sounds a little bit like selling indulgences for greenhouse gas emissions. And, and of course, it will create more deadly air pollution. Uh, What do you think about that technique? Yeah, it certainly seems like a a short-term fix to the solution that isn't really going to be doing anything for the climate in, in the longer term. And then we, we have Poland. Most of their electricity is generated by burning dirty lignite coal. The Polish government has promised to kick the habit and get more renewables, but now Polish homeowners are paying some of the highest electric rates in Europe. What do you see in the Polish gas and power generating market? Poland, more so than a lot of continental Europe, is still burning the dirty kind of lignite coal for power generation. It's much more exposed to to fossil fuels than a lot of the rest of Europe, which is further along in, in, in the energy transition. And Germany is a very complex picture. They've been trying to get a new gas pipeline from Russia. They're looking for gas wherever they can find it. And yet Germany has installed a lot of renewables, a lot of solar, and they get a lot of wind from Denmark. Could you talk to us a bit about the problems in the German gas outlook for this winter? It's certainly true that there's a lot of um, renewables in in the German energy power mix, but there's also 
a lot of reliance on you know, lignite, coal, and especially gas. And, and gas fills in when renewables are not producing enough power. So, you know, if the wind isn't blowing and if the sun isn't shining, then you, in the German system at the moment, you need a, a backup. And there just hasn't been enough gas around this summer for the underground gas storage levels in Germany to reach a, a satisfactory level. And so that's been behind some of the um, considerable increases in gas prices. Ireland is warned of possible blackouts. Does Europe have enough gas storage that they can really bulk up for an unusually cold winter? Well, so if you look at the figures on an aggregate level for Europe, the gas storage levels, then they're actually high enough to allow for a repeat of the quickest withdrawals of the past decade. That is to say that this suggests that there is enough in storage to get through a really severe winter. However, if you drill down more on a regional basis, then you'll see that it differs a lot by country. So if you take Germany, um, which has more storage capacity than anywhere else in Europe, uh, with the exception of Ukraine, storage levels are not high enough to allow for a repeat of the strongest drawdown that there's been in a decade. On a country-by-country basis, there are more serious security of supply concerns. And to help reach emissions goals for climate, the European Union countries added a price per tonne of carbon burned. How much is that, and how is the carbon price figuring in this current energy uh, price and supply crunch? Yes, the price of carbon is certainly playing a big role. What we have is a kind of circular system. So the power sector, you you have coal and gas, which compete with each other. And if there's not enough gas around, then gas prices will need to rise enough that it's more profitable to burn coal than it is to burn gas. But coal is a dirtier fuel than gas, which means more permits more carbon permits are required. So that in itself will bring up the carbon costs and the fact that gas prices are rising will increase the costs of emissions even more. So it's a bit of a circular system. We've seen also alongside the dramatic increases in gas prices, we've also seen carbon costs at record highs this summer. So all that adds up when you're just in a household and you're getting a bill at the end of the month to a bit of a shock. Certainly, yeah. It's been a bit of a shock, I think, how how much household and consumer bills have risen already and these latest dramatic price increases are going to really increase the burden on, on end consumers. Traders in the market are bidding on gas uh, months away or or sometime in the future for contracts in the future, and that is going to help determine what will happen to the actual bills that people get in their homes and, and industries have to pay. So are you able to see that sort of ahead of time to, to do some forecasting about prices? Um, yes, certainly. And I think part of the issue here is that there's a significant risk premium added for gas prices for delivery in the winter. So traders 
um, will be thinking about the worst case scenario, which you know might be severely cold weather or an unplanned disruption. You know, if if a certain key supplier has something break in, in the middle of the winter, what would that mean? Especially if uh, that coincides with really cold weather. You know, maybe in Europe as well as um, globally in, in Asia. So. People are definitely factoring in that kind of worst-case scenario thinking, and that plays out in in forward gas prices, and that will already be hitting consumers for their energy bills. So, you know, at the moment, gas demand is is not that high in Europe. Um, it's it's a really uh, seasonal uh, pattern. So, you know, as soon as people it gets cold and people are heating their homes, that's when gas consumption across the region will really ramp up, and and that hasn't happened yet. So. It's really the the fear of what could happen that is driving prices up. I found an interesting case in the Netherlands. The Dutch should be able to produce lots of extra gas for this winter. After all, they sit on the and I may mispronounce this on the Groningen field, the largest natural gas field in Europe, tenth largest in the world. But that is out of the picture and soon to close. Why? That's an interesting case. So, producing gas from the Groningen field, which is an onshore field in the Netherlands, leads to increased seismic activity in the area. So, um, there have been small earthquakes, which have caused damage to homes, and it became a, a, a massive political issue in the country. And that led the government to saying it will shut down production from the field. As soon as it can, while also ensuring that homes can still be kept warm, and that essential businesses will will still have the gas that they need. The biggest gas field in Europe is actually set to be closed down in 2022, I believe. Yes. So the the, the plan is that the field will stop producing um, next year already, but it will not shut completely for another couple of years. It will, it will stay on standby just in case it's needed. The other weird thing about that is I just presumed, well, that's what you get with fracking, lots of earthquakes, but they're not using fracking, I don't think. They're, it surprises me that conventional gas production can still lead to earthquakes. Yeah, that's right. It's been a it's been a long kind of fraught political debate. I think the the catalyst for deciding to completely shut down the field was a, a slightly larger earthquake that happened a couple of years ago, causing damage to houses, and it it really became an issue where the government felt the pressure from public opinion to say it would do something as soon as possible to stop producing from the field. Well, what about Norway? Can we count on them to fill the gas gap if Europe gets a punishing winter? Well, by our calculations, there is some scope for production to be a little bit higher than it was last winter. And this is because of extra production from the big uh, swing field, which is called Troll. It's the largest uh, producing gas field in Norway. And they've just brought online a new section of the field, which is expected to lift the field's peak production. However, this will only just be enough to offset declining output from more mature areas of the Norwegian continental shelf. So, in fact, um, most North Sea fields are in steady decline. So from year to year, their production um, will decrease, and that's that's not been offset 
by newer fields starting up. There have been some new oil and gas fields that have started up in recent years, but that's been outpaced by the decline from other fields. So I would expect the Norwegians to produce um, a bit more than last winter, but certainly not enough to plug the gap. Well, that's another good reason for Europeans to switch over to renewables because those gas fields are not going to stand up. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Spain took one of the most drastic steps this week to rein in prices, saying it would take back almost 3 billion euros in profits from energy companies. We are going to take away those extraordinary profits that the energy companies are making. They can afford it, and we are going to redirect them to consumers to cap the gas bill in the face of the foreseeable increase in the price of gas in the coming months. And we are also going to reduce the electric bill. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest, Natasha Fielding, is an energy editor for Global Energy and Commodities Price Monitor Argus Media. We are looking at the steep rise of natural gas and, of course, the electricity generated from it as we head into what has been predicted could be a cold winter. It's a little early yet. We don't know for sure, but there are signs that it may be a colder winter. Natasha, let's pull back to the reality of a global energy market. Tell us about the role of China's industry resurgence after the initial shock of the COVID pandemic. China's gas demand has been uh, increasing at a very rapid pace, particularly if if you compare it to Europe's incremental gas demand. So the increase in, in, in China's economy has been accompanied by an increase in its gas demand particularly so as China is looking to move away from burning um, the dirtier coal um, and instead switching to gas. This has been a a, a key part of the the global picture um, in terms of also looking from the European perspective because China is is swallowing up some of that extra gas supply and, and that leaves less for Europe. Can China just outbid everyone else for natural gas, and are their purchases distorting the price market for others? It's certainly true that China has a lot fewer options for satisfying its demand than Europe does. So um, in Europe, there's a large amount of underground storage capacity, and in addition to a lot of options for pipeline gas Uh, Europe also has a lot of uh, receiving terminals for liquefied natural gas. China, by contrast, does not have a lot of underground storage capacity and does not have a great amount of uh, flexibility on the pipeline gas side. So if it needs the extra gas, then Chinese companies will outbid their Asian counterparts for that gas. And that's what we can expect in the winter, I would say. And where does Australia's large natural gas exports fit into this global picture of supply? So Australia um, exports um, a lot of gas as liquefied natural gas. So that's when um, the gas is is, uh, liquefied and it goes on on tankers and they sail around the world to wherever they're needed. Most of Australia's gas exports stay within the Asia-Pacific region, um, that is uh, you know, satisfying, including a uh, Chinese gas demand. 
And can Russia's state-owned gas giant Gazprom rush in to add more power for Europe if needed? We don't believe that Russia's state-owned company Gazprom has enough spare gas production to be able to send that extra supply to Europe. Particularly this summer, Russia's domestic storage reserves were very low, so Russia had to send a lot of gas just to refill its domestic storage inventories, which is part of the reason why it didn't send more gas to Europe. And while Russian domestic production is certainly on the rise, and we expect it to be higher this year than it was last year, we don't believe that Russia will be able to send a lot more gas to Europe to to, to plug that gap. Some American financial analysts say one factor driving higher gas prices was the unnatural heat wave last summer. Demand for air conditioning was so high that gas plants that would have been shut down for the summer were kept open. And in addition to gas, heat, and power in the winter, we now have blistering new heat waves that add a whole new season for gas plants that meet peak demands. We've got a summer air conditioning season. And I wonder if that's going to become a factor in Europe and particularly in southern Europe as the planet warms up. Yes, I do think that's increasingly becoming a phenomenon. And I mean, in in southern Europe already, there's a lot of air conditioning demand. So, you know, Italy and uh, Spain already have a, a bump in their gas demand in, in the hottest summer months. What I think could be a growing trend for the future is other European countries, um, more of the kind of nor- northern Europe, having to install more air conditioning, which then increases its gas demand. And, and, and like you say, could bring another peak gas demand period, aside from the winter heating demand season. And in the United States, natural gas prices are almost double their quite low price from a year ago. And natural gas prices are about double in Canada, too. CNBC reports, quote, If there is an especially cold winter, Goldman Sachs analysts see the potential for another doubling of price. Natasha, is the gas market normally this variable? The variability of the gas market has has certainly increased in recent years. And I would say we have had a very variable couple of years. Last summer, because of the, the COVID pandemic, we had depressed gas demand globally. And we've seen it really rebound this year. So that's been a, a stark contrast. But I think it, to a certain extent, it's a systemic thing. Because of this energy transition we have, the energy system has become a lot more brittle. So in previous years, if, if you would go back five years, if we had a, a similar situation, there would be more coal plants online and more scope to burn fuel oil rather than gas to generate power. It's a major advantage that we don't have as much scope to burn those dirtier fuels now from a, from a climate perspective. But it also means that there is much more chance of gas prices spiking because you just don't have that flexibility to switch to those other sources. I mean, gas is a backup for renewables. But what about if you don't have that backup for gas anymore? 
But there does come a point where it's just plain cheaper to go back to coal and oil than it is to burn gas if gas prices stay high enough long enough. Have we already reached that point? We have, yes. We've already seen a resurgence of of coal burn in the power sector in in Europe this summer um, at the expense of gas. And we're starting to see more oil being burned. In Europe, there isn't that much fuel oil that can be burned for power generation. It's a bit of a different story in Asia where there is more fuel oil demand. But this is certainly something we have already started to see this summer. Yes, it's a bit of a mess from a climate perspective because we're starting to see a slide back down the ladder into the dirtier fuels, including oil and coal. The U.S. Energy Information Administration says, quote, as a result of the higher expected natural gas prices, the forecast share of electricity generation from coal rises from 20% in 2020 to about 24% in both 2021 and 2022. So once again, as your article tells us, Higher natural gas prices can lead to an increase in coal burning and more greenhouse gas emissions. That is the result, and it's a real setback for climate goals. When you just don't have enough gas in the system, it's a fallback option to have more coal burn, more oil being burnt. Yeah, like I said, renewables are still fairly intermittent in a lot of Europe. And if you can't fully rely on those renewables, then you have to have the fallback option of, you know, a fossil fuel. And if there's not enough gas around, then you have to turn to those dirtier fuels. And this can extend into the future because some companies may have decided they're going to mothball their coal or uh, oil-burning electricity production facilities, or some governments may have decided they're going to mandate that that happens. But now with the high price of natural gas and not quite enough renewables yet, they may decide to keep these dirty plants open for years into the future. Yeah, it it certainly seems that companies and and governments are stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, there are plans throughout Europe to to phase out coal plants. There are also plans to phase out um, nuclear capacity in Germany next year. And all that puts a lot more stress and a lot more burden on on the gas system to be able to, to make up for that. And when you're in a situation of there not being enough gas around... That's a real uh, dilemma. Do you see the current high gas prices as a temporary variation in the market, or could this be the start of a new period of difficulties where we have a tough time reaching even the most basic emissions targets and getting the energy that we need? It's a difficult one to predict. I mean, partly the weather is always a a massive uncertainty factor, and that will have a, a really big impact But I would say it could be a medium-term trend for the gas market. And the fact that we have quite low European underground gas storage inventories headed into this winter could have an impact for years to come. Because um, if you have very high storage inventories at the beginning of the winter, that greatly increases the likelihood of there being quite a bit of gas left in storage at the end of the winter. Whereas the situation we have now is already looking very likely that we will need, that gas prices will need to stay high enough for enough gas supply to come to Europe to replenish that, those gas storages next summer. So it, it certainly looks like it's going to filter through to the next 
at least the next couple of years. Although obviously, you know, weather is remains a big a big uncertainty factor. And as we wrap up here, Natasha, as you say in your Argus article, gas prices will need to soar enough to force deeper demand-side responses this winter. That's kind of an industry way of saying that consumers will have to feel some pain, industry will have to feel some pain in order to force those changes that we need to renewables, no pain, no gain, no climate gains. How do you see that balance between our current dependence on fossil fuels and our dire need to stop burning them. It's a very tricky balance, and it's really coming to the fore at the moment. I mean, ju- just last week, Europe's largest fertilizer producer, Yara, said it will curtail around 40% of its ammonia output because of this rise in gas prices. So we're already seeing a big impact on industry of these soaring gas prices. And that's just because there's there's not enough gas around, so industry is, is going to have to burn less gas. And that has a has an impact on a whole range of other sectors. So because of these fertilizer plants being closed, one of the byproducts of fertilizer production is a CO2. CO2 is used for uh, meat packaging and also to stun animals before they're slaughtered. So this is going to have a big knock-on effect for the meat industry um, as a result, that's just one example of how these soaring gas prices have filtered through to a number of economic sectors. Um, and that's something that I would expect to see much more of in, in, the, in the coming weeks and, and months because of these high gas prices. From Argus Media Group in London, we have been speaking with European natural gas editor Natasha Fielding. Natasha, thank you for sharing your company expertise with us. We appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. It's been great. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. The world natural gas shortage and the skyrocketing prices shine a light on the difficult path we have towards a survivable climate. On the one hand, no one wants to see people go cold or hungry during a tough winter. But we have to stop burning fossil fuels to survive in the future. Europeans have adapted to their winters before, as you know, as wars or depression brought on very hard times. People wore extra sweaters or even coats indoors. But now we have a new factor, as outlined by Judah Cohen and others, including Jennifer Francis of Rutgers. Here's the story. In the past, a strong barrier of upper atmosphere wind, the polar vortex, kept severe Arctic cold contained within polar regions. That wind results from the difference between the heat in the tropics and cold at the poles. But in recent decades, the Arctic has warmed so much, there is less difference in temperature. So the wind guardrail breaks, letting super cold sweep down into the northern U.S., North Europe, and parts of Siberia and North China. That may not happen every winter. It may not happen this winter. But so far, signs in Siberian snow, low Arctic sea ice, and the arrival of the Pacific cold water pattern La Nina all point towards excursions of the polar vortex southwards. And these frigid cold zones can get stuck or blocked over land for longer periods. 
This may not be your grandfather's winter anymore. Extreme rains are flooding the earth. Actually, only part of that is true. Recently, with UCLA guest Jesse Norris, scientists confidently confirm extreme precipitation events are increasing in recent decades. The trouble is, despite vivid media footage of cars floating down the streets, the actual numbers of floods do not show a corresponding increase. Why not? To plan the future and understand possible disasters, we have new science with an explanation and a warning. Our guide is the lead author of the new study. Dr. Manuela Bruner got her master's in climate sciences at the University of Bern, Switzerland, and then a doctorate of geography at the University of Zurich. Now she is a lecturer at the University of Freiburg in Germany, focusing on hydrological extremes and water resources. From Freiburg, Manuela Brunner, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, everyone, and thanks for having me, Alex. This problem you study, it runs against common sense. If the planet is experiencing more extreme precipitation, of course there must be more floods. Why would you question that? The thing is, while you would expect increasing precipitation um, to lead to increases in flooding, we don't necessarily see this behavior in our short observational records. This means that there's limited observational evidence of increases in flooding, and that's just because we might not be looking at the extreme events where increases in precipitation do actually lead to increases in flooding. All right, so could you take a little bit of time to unfold your team's explanation for this paradox? I mean, is it just a matter of we don't have good enough observations, or is there something else at work here when it comes to how heavy rains do or do not lead to more flooding? What we show in our study is that there's actually some severity threshold above which we do see increases in flooding as a response to increases in extreme precipitation, and below which we see a decrease or, or just weak changes in flooding as a response to increases in precipitation. And we see these two different types of responses for moderate and very severe extreme events, because if we look at moderate extreme precipitation events, the role of the soil or the soil state plays an important role too. So imagine you have a rather dry soil and you start adding a little bit of precipitation. Initially, that precipitation can be absorbed by the dry soil, but this absorptive capacity has a certain limit above which the increases in precipitation will trigger some sort of a runoff or a stream flow response. Now imagine that you keep adding more and more water, and at some point you're going to produce a flood event. Now if your precipitation event is just moderate, the increase in precipitation might not necessarily lead to an increase in flooding because the soil can absorb part of the precipitation event. If, however, you're talking about very extreme precipitation events, the soil state does no longer matter because the 
moisture you're adding through the precipitation event is so large that in any case, the precipitation event will trigger um, some flood event. So it's all about the pre-existing conditions in combination with the rainfall event, which means that it's not just about the precipitation increases, but the soil state matters too. Well, we have a very strange relationship here with climate change because the warming climate means the atmosphere can hold more water, so we're more likely to get extreme precipitation events. But at the same time, the heating may dry out the soil, so that creates a buffer that almost hides some of those extreme rains instead of letting them become a flood. Is that right? That's exactly true. So climate change has this twofold effect on flooding it, on the one hand, influences soil moisture states and the soil drying leads uh, to the fact that more rain can potentially be absorbed, which can lead potentially to decreases in flooding for just moderate um, precipitation extremes. While if we're looking at um, the very extreme events, the soil moisture states uh, no longer matter a lot and the increasingly intense precipitation will translate into flooding eventually. I like the way one of your co-authors, Daniel Swain, he runs the well-known Twitter feed, Weather West, and he, he, he said this about it, the result is striking since it suggests that while smaller floods may decrease, the largest and most destructive floods will likely increase meaning the sign of flood hydrologic response to climate change likely depends on event intensity. It's a little bit tricky to understand. What does he mean by event intensity determining the outcome? With event intensity, he means basically the magnitude of the precipitation event. So imagine you're looking at a very severe precipitation event, for example, the one that just happened uh, recently in July in Germany, or think about a precipitation event such as the one that triggered the Tennessee flooding also just recently. If you have such high-intensity events, we would in future expect an increase in flooding as a response of increases in such intense precipitation events. While if you consider some more moderate uh, precipitation event increases such as, you know, um, events you would maybe observe once a year or every second year, you might not necessarily see an increase in flooding as a response to these moderate events. And with intensity, he just meant basically the difference between these moderate, regular, extreme precipitation events and more severe, very rare precipitation events that happen maybe twice a century or even um, less often. Well, I could see how this is important because if we imagine a government planner who sees more extreme rains but not anything unusual in floods, so why would the government spend millions on flood protection when so far not much new has happened? What does your work tell those planners and all of us, really? What our work can tell those planners is that by just looking at observed trends in flood magnitudes, we might underestimate future changes in flood magnitudes because our observations, they're 
typically short time series. And in these short time series, we observe more of these moderate extreme precipitation, precipitation events, those that might in some cases even decrease in future, while they contain very few of these high intensity and very extreme events we're actually interested in, and these are the high impact events. And if we just look at the observations, we don't see necessarily see the increases in those high intensity events we're expecting in the future and which we also see in our large ensemble simulations. Right. For that simulation, your team used the catchment basement of three rivers in Bavaria, including the headwaters of the Danube, I think. So did you find a flood threshold for extreme rain flooding there? Yes, we demonstrate that there's this severity or extremeness threshold above which we expect increases in flooding as a response to increases in precipitation and below which soil is an important modulator of um, changes in future flooding. And uh, we use 78 different catchments in the headwaters of the main and Danube catchments in uh, southern Germany. And um, for these catchments, we show that there is such a, a threshold. The exact location of the severity or extremeness threshold can vary depending on catchment elevation, on season, or also on catchment size. Manuela, you know the United States. In November 2020, you delivered a webinar on regional floods in the U.S. You worked as a postdoc researcher at NCAR, the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research. Can we transfer your results in Germany to the United States? And if so, what are the lessons for our American listeners? We think that the results we find in southern Germany are, to some degree, transferable to the United States, especially those regions that are characterized by humid, temperate climates. The exact location of the threshold might vary a bit depending on the climate zone. For example, it might um, lie a bit higher in, in drier regions, such as the Great Plains, because there the capacity of the soil to absorb precipitation might be a little higher. Then the location of the threshold might also be a bit different in heavily urbanized areas because there we have to consider uh, that the urban area is characterized by sealed and impermeable soils and there or increases in flooding might be a very direct response of increases in precipitation because the soil can really hardly absorb any moisture. And such urban catchments were not really included in our German catchment selection. And therefore, for those catchments that are heavily urbanized, we would expect a much more direct relationship between increases in precipitation and flooding than we saw in our German case study catchments. Could we develop a warning system partly by just monitoring the amount of water already soaked into our landscape so we'd know what uh, it can take? You could certainly monitor 
soil wetness and take that as an indicator for the risk of flooding given a certain a rainfall forecast. This is currently also part of the current uh, flood forecasting systems. And we've known that soil moisture is an important flood driver for a long time. So this is definitely something that is being considered when we uh, do flood forecasting. On this new study, it's just one of a part of a series of peer-reviewed papers you led this year. One is directly about, quote, challenges in modeling and predicting floods and droughts. How far along are we in being able to predict when these life-changing events are coming or what to expect as the world warms? Well, if we're talking more about forecasts, so basically the prediction of events happening in the next few days, We've uh, definitely made some advances in the recent years in, in terms of um, the flood forecasting change. However, if you want to look beyond uh, forecasts of a few days, the weather system is very chaotic and predictions are increasingly difficult. But what, what we've definitely come up with is good information chains where Initial conditions, for example, the conditions of the soil can readily be updated in order to forecast future or upcoming flood events uh, more reliably than we used to be able to do um, a few years ago. I've seen several examples. I remember one from East Africa where there was a long period of drought and then suddenly a burst of extreme rains and the whole place just flooded out. And we also have the example of Pakistan, uh, which is a very dry place, but in 2010, about a third of the country flooded. A, an amazing event. I think we need more study on what really happened there. It kind of got lost. But you have, in your work, looked at how a region shifts from a long, dry regime to a sudden burst of extreme rains. Is it important to understand those transition times? definitely important to look at also uh, drought to flood transitions, which is important in terms of management. Im imagine you're in this long, dry period and your management is really targeted at alleviating the current drought conditions. This might lead, for example, to water storage in reservoirs. But now imagine that your dry condition is, is suddenly transferring into a rather wet condition, and because you're saving all that water in the reservoir, you're no longer able to store additional flood water in order to alleviate the flood condition. So being able to understand this interplay between dry and flood conditions is very important such that you can, such that you can anticipate potential management options and don't run into the situation where you've optimized the system for one condition but forgot about the potential happening of uh, the other condition. Well, that totally makes sense. And you say the time scale is key to understanding hot, dry events, the time scale. But to be honest, I read the paper and I still don't really get why I, I didn't get it. Can you help us out on that? Well, the time matters because of because of impacts. So um, imagine you have a one-month um, hot dry event and 
you might be able to get some water from somewhere to ensure water supply. You might still be able to get some water from a neighboring region to irrigate your fields, to rescue the, the harvest. However, if your event lasts a whole year, it might be much more difficult to get water from other places or to store water somewhere in the catchment such that you can bridge a whole year of uh, low water availability. So the time scale is essential in terms of water management because the longer the event, the more difficult it is to find enough water to ensure water supply in all the different sectors. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest from the University of Freiburg is research scientist Manuela Bruner. We're talking about extremes in the water cycle from drought to record rains and floods. If we're looking at things that happen over decades and we're drawing out charts of of the slow development of climate change, and then we have these large excursions, these big blips of extreme rains and, uh, and, and very great heat, do they really show up in the climate models? It looks to me like you had to develop or use a, a climate model from another university, a fairly new technology, to really pick up what is going on. I wonder if that means advice to governments or even the IPCC are sometimes to generalize to pick up extreme events. Is that fair? Yeah, it's true. These um, very extreme events or the exceptional types of events they um, only show up in parts of the simulation. So what we did in this study is that we ran a climate model several times with different initial conditions to generate a large ensemble of stream flow time series, which hopefully contain some of these very severe or exceptional events we are interested in. And it is true if you just run your climate model once, you might not be de- depicting the whole variability of your phenomenon. So you might be missing out on certain extreme events, which you could potentially observe, but we're just not necessarily simulating them if we're feeding the model with just one potential realization of temperature or um, precipitation. So in order to look at the whole variability in stream flow, we want to feed our hydrological model several times with different types of temperature and precipitation time series, such that among the simulated events, we'll have a few that are exceptional and we can use to study these very extreme events. If there is a hydrological threshold where extreme rainfall breaks into extreme flooding, can we discover what that threshold is for different places, and how would it help? We can discover the location of this severity threshold above which increases in precipitation translate to increases in flooding by running a large number of climate simulations, which can then be again, fed into a hydrological model. And this large ensemble of climate and hydrological simulations will allow us to study the location of this extremeness or severity threshold. In a different field, fire experts stress the key to forest recovery after a fire is the interval of time before the next fire arrives. 
If fire returns within three to five years, regrowth may be killed right off. How does the return interval work in your studies of extreme rains and floods? Is it important? Yes, definitely. We quantify this severity threshold in terms of a return period. That means that we show that for events that happen less frequently than every 20 to 50 years, we see a relatively direct relationship between increases in precipitation and increases in flooding, while for more frequent events with return periods of 10 years or 5 years, we might not necessarily see increases in flooding as a response to increases in extreme precipitation. So that means we just use the return period as a proxy for event rareness or event severity. I find the importance of land and geography is often left out of climate stories. We talk about atmosphere, oceans, solar energy, winds. Your work brings back the role of landscape, soil, and rivers into weather and climate change. Would you agree? Yes, definitely. I'm a hydrologist, and that's basically our task to show that it's not just about what's happening in the atmosphere, but that that there's a lot of important processes on the land surface that shape the behavior of the water cycle too. So uh, we kind of go beyond atmospheric sciences and couple what's happening in the atmosphere with what's happening at the land surface. And when you get questions like what caused this drought or this heat wave, do you find people are, are looking for a single answer really and, and avoiding complexity? For example, What is a compound event, and can you give us a case of it? A compound event is an event where not just one variable is affected, but actually several variables are affected at once, and these variables might also interact with each other. So let's um, make an example. For example, if you're looking at a compound hot-dry event, We're talking about an event where precipitation is very low and at the same time temperature is very high. So we have this precipitation anomaly combined with a precipitation anomaly and talk about compound events. So it's really about events where we're not just looking at temperature or just at precipitation, but we're considering the two variables at the same time and are interested in situations where both of them show a dry or hot anomaly, respectively. Well, when it comes to a flood threshold, it seems almost like there's a trap here. We may get lulled into complacency by floods that are within normal records. Do you think that as the world warms, society could face flooding on unprecedented scales, disasters beyond our experience. This is definitely possible. I mean, we've just had a recent example in Germany, in uh, Rhineland-Pfalz, where we've seen an an exceptional precipitation event, or it was also exceptional in terms of intensity, but what what made it really exceptional was its large spatial extent. And as such, this, this event can kind of unexpected, but we're always going to see such 
unexpected events, and they're going to become more likely as we move into a warmer future. After talking with a few hundred scientists, I am worried about the future and what we are leaving our kids and grandchildren on a personal level. Uh, Are you worried or are you still optimistic? Well, I'm optimistic in the sense that we can still do something against it. We can still determine in some way how strong the future changes in climate and uh, the hydrological cycle are going to be. But I'm kind of also a little bit pessimistic in the sense that we cannot go back to where we were 30 years ago because we've already uh, started to warm the atmosphere and the changes we are currently seeing can no longer be removed. So what we can just do is to, yeah, to reduce emissions or to change maybe our behavior such that the changes are smaller than they would be if, you, if we kept emitting as we're emitting right now. Yes, I would say it's, it's looking bad, but we can still avoid the worst. So, no doubt you're already looking at other problems to solve with science. Manuela, what are you working on these days? These days, I'm looking at uh, the direct human impact on hydrological extremes. That means uh, floods and droughts. And by direct human impact, I mean um, more direct impact on the water cycle than maybe changes in climate, such as... Uh, reservoir regulations or water abstractions or um, other types of water regulation. From Freiburg in Breisgau, Germany, we have been speaking with lecturer and research scientist Manuela Brunner. She has published a series of papers on the hydrology of Earth, from drought to extreme rains and floods. You can find links to Manuela's website and all the science we just talked about in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Manuela, thank you for sharing your valuable work with us. Thank you very much for having me. For Radio EcoShock, I'm Alex Smith. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org.